We are resuming our series on Amillennialism 101, and tonight we come to a discussion of the rapture. And before we pick up with our new material tonight, I'd like to do a very, very important but brief bit of review. One of the issues that I think we face when we talk about the rapture, and especially when we critique the dispensational understanding of the rapture, is it's easy to start with a criticism and to say, here are the exegetical problems of the rapture. That argument can only take you so far because unless you have what I think are the clear passages already in mind when you come to a discussion of the passages that our dispensational friends use to talk about a, a rapture as a second event from Christ's bodily advent. We need to keep in mind the stuff we've established the last few weeks. So let me do a brief recap of that and call your attention to um, Van Drunen's doctrine of the concomitant events that occur at Christ's second coming. Uh, if you want a good color version of this, there's one on my blog. Um, this is a... 195th generation copy, so we're really sorry. Uh, actually, since we don't have a color copier, it comes off looking like black faded splotches. But those are really pretty colors in the original. So check out the original on the blog if you want to want to see it. Anyway, what we've been establishing is that the resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal of all things all occur at Christ's second advent. And we have spent a great deal of time going through those passages establishing that when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age, it is to raise the dead, to judge the world, and to renew the cosmos, to renew all of creation. So I want to make sure we have that in mind and have that established before we look at the dispensational grid and dispensational assumptions. Now, I think it's very important whenever you talk about controversial issues like the rapture, where Christians hold to a very, very strongly and very passionately, that before you start trading Bible passages, you identify your operating assumptions and your underlying presuppositions. Now, we've talked about that throughout this series. Um, presuppositions are especially dangerous if you don't think you have any. If you think you are coming at this totally objective and without some kind of interpretive grid, then your heels are dug in and you're going to parry other verses. There are verses for our position. There are their verses for their position. You're in a really difficult position to look at the, the, all of the data objectively. So I've been challenging us to do throughout is to identify our operating assumptions and our presuppositions so that we're aware of them. And that once you're aware of them, that this is my method, this is what I'm doing, when you run into biblical passages that don't fit with that, it triggers kind of the red light and you're forced to say that's data that doesn't fit with my position. But if you're not thinking of your operating assumptions and not looking at this critically, then that's one of their verses. You don't ever consider how it challenges or how it affects your understanding of Scripture. So, we have already established from very clear passages in the last two lectures that the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous the judgment of all men, the wheat, the tare, the sheep and goats, the elect and the reprobate, and the cosmic renewal when the elements burn up with a roar and there is a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. Those things all occur at Christ's second advent. Now, if that's true, what it means is our timeline is going to be something like this. 
Christ's first advent. We have the two eschatological ages again, this age, which when it appears throughout the New Testament is always used in reference to things temporal. We have the age to come, always used in reference to things eternal. What separates this age from the age to come is Christ's second coming. So, what this means is we live in the period in Revelation chapter 20 called the thousand years now. And that Christ comes back at the end of the millennial reign, the end of the thousand years, at the end of the inter-advental period. And when he comes, it is to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. This means that the second coming is the consummation. This is what we as Christians are expecting. This is the blessed hope. This is that for which we long, for Christ to come back because time gives way to eternity. The temporal gives way to the age to come. There's nothing left to accomplish after Christ comes back. That's the point we've been establishing. If you're premillennial, you have the present age, you have the thousand years, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth. And so our premillennial friends have to say that Christ's coming establishes the thousand-year reign and that during this thousand years there are people on the earth in natural bodies and people on the earth in resurrected bodies. That on its face should be really problematic. How do people get through the second coming in a natural body if Christ judges the world, raises the dead, and makes all things new when He returns? There's, There's no way to get people on the earth after Christ comes back in a natural body because when He returns, it's for the judgment. Who can get through Christ's second coming and not be elect or reparate wheat or tear sheep or goat? There's no possibility for people to be on the earth. Then you have the problem with the halfway renewals we talked about last time. The expectation that during the millennial reign you have something that's basically like Eden restored. Lions lying down with lambs, You know, I was growing up in dispensationalism, kept telling my parents I wanted a pet cobra or a pet tiger in the millennium because, you know, animals would be tame. There was kind of that underground discussion of what you could do and Jesus is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and so on. And then at the end of the thousand years, premillennialians say Christ comes back for the judgment and only then do you have the new heavens and the new earth. Now, our dispensational friends have an answer to that question. How do you get people on earth in natural bodies during the millennial age. Historic premillionarians are really stuck on the horns of a dilemma on that one because if Christ comes back and that is a time at which He separates the wheat from the tare and the sheep from the goats, that's very clearly taught from clear passages, then who gets through that in the natural body? So for George Ladd or for a historic premillionarian, that's a real problem. But if you're dispensational, you have an out. Ah, Christ comes back seven years before the millennial reign. And when he comes back, he raptures the Gentile church off the earth. They're in heaven for seven years. They return with Christ. So those who are on the earth, who are not taken in the rapture, and who become Christians during the tribulation period, they're the ones who go on to inhabit the earth during the thousand years. So the argument I've been using against historic premillennialism doesn't work against dispensationalists in their minds because they'll say, look, I can explain that. The rapture comes. Believers are taken off. 
They're taken up to heaven to be with the Lord. They're with Christ in heaven for, during the seven-year tribulation period on earth. Christ comes back. They're the ones who rule and reign with Christ. But there are people on the earth who become Christians during that period, the 144,000 and so on. They then are the ones who go on and repopulate the earth. So this is why I talk about the dispensation or saying the rapture last. Because the only way the critique is going to make sense is against the things we've already established. And again, I want to reiterate, as you see on Van Drunen's chart, I think it's very clear from very plain and clear biblical passages that these three things all occur at the same time. And that it's impossible to have people on the earth after Christ comes back who have not been raised, judged, and that there's no halfway redeemed earth called them the millennial kingdom, there's a new heaven and a new earth. So that's what we've established. Now let's talk about the critique of dispensational premillennialism's uh, preacher rapture. Now, whenever you talk about eschatology, um, when I do this on the radio or when I speak at conferences, and you mention you're talking on, dis- on eschatology, people think, oh, you're going to talk about the rapture of the millennium. So, yeah, this is really a big topic, and this is one that people have a great deal of interest in. And when you say and mention the rapture in the context of eschatology, people immediately go to Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind novels, How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth. Um, I won't tell you about how old I am, but the first serious piece of theology I read was when I was 14, How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth. I was the first theology book that I remember reading and, and being just blown away, absolutely fascinated by that particular book. Uh, that book, by the way, was the best-selling book in the United States during the 1970s. Ten million copies or more. It's been reprinted 140 times. It's just phenomenal the success of that book. But that's been dwarfed by the left-behind stuff. And the LaHaye um, I'm trying to think of his co-author, Tim, uh, Jerry Jenkins. The Hey Jenkins stuff has been off the chart sales-wise. You can't go through an airport in the United States and not see Left Behind stuff somewhere in the bookstalls. It's huge. So when you talk about eschatology, that's what people think you're going to spend all your time on is talking about Nikolai and the mysterious peace treaty the Antichrist is going to make with Israel and so on. And because we as Reformed Christians are not doing the current events in light of Scripture stuff, we sound completely different than our dispensational friends because they're looking for current events and then trying to find passages that explain current events. And as we've argued previously, uh, no, the proper procedure is to compare Scripture with Scripture and allow our biblical model to explain current events. We don't find a current event and then go find a passage that we think is describing that current event. So we don't want to hitch our wagon, as we've seen, to every passing despot that comes along in the Middle East. Um, for those of you who are on Christian publishing, you, you know what I'm talking about. John Walbert's Arab Oil in the Middle East in the 1970s becomes a book about Saddam Hussein in Desert Storm with Iraq and is now a book about Persia um, since the Gulf War is over. So we have to be very, very careful not to tie our eschatology to current events, but allow the Bible to tell us what's going to happen and approach it that way. So, now, um, it is, I think, important to point out that the preacher rapture 
is a minority position, if quite vocally articulated, among the Christian family. It is held only by a section of the evangelical church in the United States and a few places around the world that have been influenced by American evangelicalism. But it has never been a position held by the Protestant reformers. It's always been a position that the Protestant reformers were suspect. If you go back to look, say, at the Second Helvetic Confession, um, the reform were very nervous that there was what was called a Jewish interpretation of Scripture. And this was not something that was an anti-Semitic kind of thing, although you could certainly find that uh, during the 17th, 16th, 17th century. But what you have is a concern that Old Testament promises, the kinds of things promised to Israel back when Israel was in the land of promise, that that would be realized in the future. And the Reformers were concerned to say, no, 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 what, what is wrong with that is, that makes Israel and the typology central. It doesn't allow Christ and his person and work to be central. So that's what the reformers were, nourish, were nervous about. And uh, you can read my essay and my response to John MacArthur because I addressed that in, in some detail, why MacArthur is saying, no, 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 if you're truly reformed, you're going to have an Israel dispensational-centered hermeneutic because God chose Israel, right? And if you're not a dispensationist, you're saying God elected Israel and then rejected Israel, then you can't hold a predestination. So you can't truly be a Calvinist unless you're, historic, unless you're dispensationalist. And those of us who were Reformed put up our hands and said, what are you talking about? Because the entire Reformed tradition considers dispensationalism to be very problematic given the fact that the Bible is centered in the person work of Christ and the covenants associated with the person work of Christ. So um, all that is to say, that's what's going on here when we talk about this. This is, this is really a big issue. Now, according to one of, I think, the clearest and best dispensational theologians, J. Dwight Pentecost, which is always an interesting name for a theologian. I'm stuck with Rillabar. I wish I had a cool last name to do biblical theology. Pentecost is about as good as it gets. Uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Things to Come, identifies the four essential presuppositions of the dispensational hermeneutic. Now, in light of this discussion, which is a brief survey of what we talked about the last two weeks, in light of that discussion, listen to the four essential presuppositions of the dispensational, and as Pentecost calls it, the pre-tribulation rapture uh, conception. One is a literal interpretation of the Scriptures. Now, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that sounds on its face like something every Bible-believing Christian should affirm, the literal interpretation of Scripture. Because we do take the Bible seriously. But has it ever been the Protestant position to interpret the Bible literally? You're all shaking your head no. What has been the historic Protestant interpretation? Scripture interprets Scripture in light of its context. So... Is it a literal interpretation to do as dispensationalists do, to stand here in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, and say that promise God made to Israel and Abraham of the land, that verse in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, those verses that speak of a land, a people, and a nation, that means that the rest of Scripture 
Israel means Israel, and the promise is a land, a people, and a nation. That sounds on its face like it'd be right. The problem is, you have a midpoint in Scripture. Christ. And when Jesus and His apostles say, no, I'm the one who fulfills that prophecy. It's about me. I am true Israel. I am the temple. Now, are we interpret the Bible literally if we allow Genesis to tell us what the Gospels mean? Or are we, as Christians, looking back at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and fulfillment? And the Protestant position has always been, no, the New Testament tells us what those Old Testament passages point, were pointing forward to. So the literal interpretation on its face sounds like that would be just the end of the discussion. But is it proper to allow the Old Testament to tell us what the New Testament has to say? No. So I think it is proper to read the lens of New Testament eschatology through Jesus and the Apostles, not through Old Testament Israel. So I don't think Pentecost can make good on his, his claim. I think he has a very literalistic reading of Scripture, and I think he denies the plain sense of Scripture again and again and again, and he comes up against the analogy of faith over and over and over, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. The clearer text tells us what the more obscure passages mean. So, second presupposition. The, Israel, uh, the church and Israel are two distinct groups with whom God has a divine plan. Now, again, this one's very highly problematic. Pentecost says that unless you assume that God has a plan for national Israel and a plan for the Gentile church, you're not going to come up with this pre-trib rapture. And that's exactly right. If Pentecost presupposition that God has a plan, a purpose for national Israel and the Gentile church that are mutually exclusive, then you have to get the Gentile church off the earth to have your seven-year tribulation period, which centers around Antichrist making a peace treaty with Israel. If you wish to say that God has two redemptive purposes, one for national Israel and one for the Gentiles, then where is that in the New Testament? And as we have seen again and again and again, God's purpose is to save his elect. And as I have argued and will argue again in our next session, we go through Romans 9 to 11, um, the only place where Paul speaks of the future of Israel is in Romans 9 to 11. And there he makes it clear that there is a believing remnant, an elect remnant according to grace. And that before the end of the age, God is going to save all Israel. But he saves all Israel not by having a separate purpose for the Jews, but by grafting them into the root. And who is the root? Christ. So if God is to deal with Israel again, he makes Jews into Christians. They come to faith in Christ, who is their Messiah. So that's a highly problematic passage. So is Ephesians chapter 2, as we saw where the purpose of Christ is to tear down the barrier wall and to make the two peoples into one, which is, I think, the most difficult problem for dispensationalists in terms of their uh, hermeneutics at two distinct groups. The third, says Pentecost, is that the church is a mystery unrevealed in the Old Testament. This present mystery age intervenes within the program of God for Israel's rejection of the Messiah at his first advent. Dispensationalists have to have this, this plan B Christ came, brings the gospel to Israel, offer the kingdom, 
Israel rejects the offer of the kingdom. Christ takes the offer back. The kingdom isn't manifest until the millennium. And as we've seen in great detail, you run up against the teaching throughout the Gospels that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's never an offer of the kingdom. The kingdom comes because the king has come. So we saw how problematic that was. And then finally, Pentecost says, the mystery program must be completed before God can resume his program with Israel and bring it to completion. Now, that runs up against a passage. Well, there are a number of passages, but a simple one is Ephesians chapter 1. It was God's eternal purpose to save his elect in Christ. And then, in Ephesians chapter 2, we find out that the coming of Christ made these two different ethnic groups into one people, the church. So, despite dispensational protest to the contrary, it's God's purpose to save his elect. And in that group, the elect, there are Jews and there are Dutchmen. There are Jews and there are Germans. So that group is made up of Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, along with believing Jews. And that multitude, John says, in the apocalypse is so vast that they cannot be even counted. So the dispensational grid goes against everything we've been laboring to establish in the prior series. So hold that thought in mind as we get into the more particular critique of dispensational passages. Now, I think... Pentecost makes a very important admission because the only way one would arrive at a secret pre-tribulational rapture is if those presuppositions are already in place. If Pentecost grid is correct, then this makes perfect sense. If, you're, if the dispensational operating assumptions are correct, then this is exactly the kind of way you'd have to argue it. But those dispensational presuppositions collapse at every point. So you end up then with someone like Pentecost having to say that this must be in place or else you would never arrive at a secret rapture seven years before Christ's bodily return. And I think that's a very important and tacit admission. And that's why I spend more time on Pentecost presuppositions than I do on the rapture passages. I think, I think the house has already been knocked down. Now we're just basically looking for a few scraps that are, that are left. Now, the pre-tribulational rapture is not contrary to the dispensational claim inductively developed from the biblical text. And as I was working through this many, many years ago, it became pretty clear to me that this was based on a very selective and a priori-laden use of the biblical data. Um, I felt, as I know a number of you have, that I was ramming passages into this Procrustean bed I'd already assumed this to be true and I had to make the passages fit. And there were loose ends hanging out all over the place. There were all kinds of passages that didn't fit in this. So it was not until I began to challenge the presuppositions and see if the grid was right that this finally blew up and went away. And I think it's very, very clear, despite my dispensationalist friends howls to the contrary, that dispensationalism is a hermeneutic. And... I challenge my dispensational friends to look at the operating assumptions and to test them. And I think that's something that we as all millenarians need to fess up and take the same challenge. Let's put these things to the test. 
Is this the grid? That all these things occur when Christ comes back? Or are the four presuppositions of Pentecost the grid? And if Pentecost is right, you're going to get something like this. If Pentecost is wrong, you're going to get something like that. So, we've done that, that work already. Now, the literalistic interpretation of Scripture associated with dispensationalism is, I think, highly problematic. We've already made the case that the church is not God's plan B. Some dispensational writers call it the great parenthesis when at the end of the 69th week of the book of, of the 70 weeks of Daniel, God stops his prophetic stopwatch and waits until the tribulation when he starts it again and then goes back to dealing with national Israel. As we'll see next time when we get to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to go through Daniel 9, and then the Olivet Discourse, and then Romans 9 to 11, and then Revelation 20. We're going to look at those passages exegetically and go through them in some detail. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, we'll see that Daniel chapter 9 is a messianic prophecy that is fulfilled by Christ's active and passive obedience. And that the breaking of a covenant is not with the Antichrist, that covenant is Christ dying for the sins of His people. He shall make a covenant with the many for one seven. He will be cut off. The language of being cut off is covenantal. It refers to Christ's death for our sins, not to an antichrist. So we're going to see that, Rome, that Daniel chapter 9 does not allow for a seven-year tribulation, which, by the way, is found nowhere in the New Testament. And we're going to see that this is a Messianic prophecy fulfilled in Christ. So the church isn't plan B. The church isn't this group of believers during the, the time when God is waiting to go back to deal with national Israel. The church is God's purpose from all eternity. It's not an accident. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 is, I think, the strongest case for that. Now, the dawn of the Messianic age and the coming of the kingdom of God, the age of the Holy Spirit, all of that, means that we're not in a parenthetical period in redemptive history until such time as God is ready to go back and deal with Israel again. And it's clearly prophesied in the Old Testament that God's redemptive purposes includes the Gentiles. He says to Abraham, I'll make you father of many nations. And then there's the famous passages from Isaiah. Far distant coastlands, the nations... They'll come to you and worship Israel's God. Well, they'll worship Yahweh, who is supremely revealed in Christ. And so the church is hidden in the Old Testament. It's not a mystery in the sense that it's not there. It's that until Christ comes, we wouldn't make sense of how the Gentiles are going to come to Israel's God. After Pentecost, that's very clear why the Gentiles come to Israel's God. Now, as the mystical body of Jesus Christ, the church is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. And if the formation of Christ's church and the salvation of God's people, the Gentiles and believing Jews, is part of God's eternal purpose, as it clearly is stated in Ephesians chapter 1, then Dr. Pentecost's presuppositions are just no longer viable. Now, I want to move on from the grid into this notion of the rapture. I want to talk about the distinction, pun intended, between the words distinction and, dif and uh, difference. Where the dispensationalist uh, position reaches, I think, its internal point of tension, 
This is one of the, I'm looking now at kind of the internal tensions within the dispensational scheme of, of reading these passages. The internal tension can be clearly seen when we start to look at those texts that treat the second coming of Christ and then to stop and look at how dispensationalists read them. To make his case for a pre-tribulational rapture, Pentecost has a list of 17 distinctions between the rapture and the second advent. Distinctions which he says serve as the basis for contending that there are yet two future comings of Jesus Christ. So, Whereas we have looked at these and called them one event, Pentecost looks at them and says, no, they're separate events. Christ returning to catch the Gentile church off the earth, followed by his bodily return seven years later. So I'm going to look at that aspect now and the way in which Pentecost argues it and the way in which I think he steps in it. First, uh, there, there are 17 of these distinctions. I'm just going to list four or five here just so you get a kind, of a, kind of a sense of how this works. This is a, a quote from Things to Come, page 206 and following. The translation, which is the older term for the rapture. My grandmother would always talk about being translated. And I was thinking, is she talking about speaking in French? Or what is, what is this? But the translation is the old term for rapture. The translation entails the removal of all believers while the second advent entails the appearing or manifestation of the sun. The translation sees the saints caught up into the air, and in the second advent, he returns to earth. In the translation, Christ comes to claim his bride, but in the second advent, he returns with his bride. And then a final one, the translation results in the removal of the church and in the inception of the tribulation, and the second advent results from the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So he sees various aspects of Christ's return as a distinction between the catching up of the church and the bodily advent of Christ. And so he identifies these 17 distinctions as the reason why we should believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Well, when Pentecost argues that because the distinction is made in these texts between the return of Christ to earth and believers being raptured away, then, followed by a physical manifestation of Jesus Christ on the earth, that this requires two mutually exclusive events separated by a seven-year tribulation, well, I think his conclusion is very highly suspect. Um, it is possible for an event like the resurrection to have different elements or aspects of it. For example, when Christ comes back and the dead are raised, there are believers... And there are unbelievers. When Christ judges the world, there are believers and there are unbelievers. There are different aspects to each of these. But that doesn't mean they're different events. And as we've seen, the, the passages are pretty clear that all three of these things are said in very clear text to occur when Christ comes back. So I think the method is suspect on its face. And I think the problem is, if you were to carry that kind of a, a, a methodology through, for example, you could, I'm going to use a rather outlandish example, uh, hyperbolically to make the point here, you could find all the passages in the Bible that speak of the Spirit being God and Christ being God and the Father being God and draw from that that there are three gods. We would all kind of chuckle and say, well, you'd never do that because there's a whole line of biblical data that says over and over and over again that God is one. 
So, I think the problem with Pentecost's view is he's trying to prove this presupposition. And he has to make a separation between two parts of the same thing. He's trapped. He's on the horns of his own presuppositions. He's got to, to, to find passages to prove that point. When, in fact, those passages do nothing of the kind. So when the Bible speaks of Christ's second coming as one event with several elements, the catching up of believers and the bodily return of Christ, dispensationalists have to interpret that verse in light of their a priori distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And they do that because they've already presupposed that the Gentile church has to be removed off the earth at the start of the seven-year tribulation period. You can see how this is kind of a an interpretive house of cards here. Pull one thread and the thing's gone. And if, for example, if we can take Daniel 9 and show there is no future seven-year tribulation period taught in Daniel 9, then what use is there to try and make a distinction between the catching up of believers and the bodily return of Christ so that you can get the seven-year tribulation in place? So I hope you see how... how dependent this is on the, on the starting point, on the presuppositions. Now, the distinction between different aspects of the second coming in no way forces us to the conclusion that these are very distinct events separated by the seven-year tribulation period. And I firmly believe that if you look at the biblical data without dispensational presuppositions, you'd never come to the conclusion from reading the New Testament that the coming of Christ was two separate events. One of them being Secret. I just don't think it's there anywhere. Now, one of the most telling criticisms is the language used by Paul. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and just read one of these standard dispensational proof texts. We did this before, but again, I think it's so helpful to just go through the passages. Now, let's start at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, mind you, your operating assumption if you're a dispensationalist, you read the Bible literally, right? Because you don't want to become an amillionarian and, and read the Bible as they do, allegorically. You can't do that. Okay, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So, again, the problem in the Thessalonian church was there was somebody running around saying, that, look at Fred, Fred died, gee, that's too bad, Fred's going to miss out on the resurrection because you have to be alive until Christ comes back to be raised from the dead. And Paul's got to correct that rather erroneous assumption. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Asleep, of course, is a metaphor for having died. That you may not grieve as others who, do not, who have no hope. Four, and in the Greek you have an explanatory clause here. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's the answer to the pastoral problem. Fred died. He's not going to miss out. When he died, his soul is now in the presence of the Lord. And when Christ returns, Fred and all those who have died in Christ are coming back with Christ. Why? To be raised from the dead. So when we die, our souls are with the Lord. And at the resurrection, those who are with Christ 
come back with him to be raised from the dead. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this means that the oral tradition, the teachings of Jesus, all that discourse and passed down to the disciples, to Paul, or directly from Jesus during the time he appeared upon the Damascus Road and following. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are, who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, you're a dispensationalist, right? You take the Bible literally, right? Is this an event where only believers see and hear? Three times in the passage... A loud command, a shout, the trumpet. Why is that emphasized three times, the fact that this is going to be really loud? Nobody's going to sleep through it. This is language of the end. This is language of the final consummation. The dead in Christ are raised. This is a picture not of a secret rapture, but of a resurrection. For we declare by a word of the Lord that we who are alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, the language here of being caught up is a word that is used to... Describe what happens when a city in the Greco-Roman world hears that the emperor or an important official is coming. The group leaves. They go out. They perform the kind of perfunctory welcoming of great dignitaries. Palm branches, flower petals, music, dancing, so on. And with the royal official, the emperor the king, the rex, they come back into the city in this grand procession with the king and his party leading the procession back into the city. That's the kind of language here we have in 1 Thessalonians. The Lord descends from heaven. Believers are caught up with Him to meet the Lord. And in the air, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a picture of the resurrection. At the end of the age. This, there's nothing in the passage that would indicate that the entire world does not see and hear this. And that because believers who are still alive are caught up to be with the Lord, because we can identify that as one element, what do believers do when they're caught up to be with the Lord? They return immediately with Him. This is the end of time. This is the grand consummation of all things. This isn't the secret rapture seven years before the tribulation. There's nothing in that passage at all that would lead us to that conclusion. Except you've already presupposed it. And you have to read it into the passage. The Lord takes up believers, but He never touches the earth. Is there anything in this passage that leads you to believe that this is seven years before Christ comes back and raises the dead? No! Nothing! It's not there. You have to make it fit. Why? You've already presupposed that. You have to have it work that way 
or your system collapses. And that was why I gave up being a dispensationalist. Over and over and over again, you were having to ram things into passages that didn't fit, and you had to do it on assumptions that some other passage taught what you were hoping this passage said, because if it didn't teach that, then you were messed up over here. You were out of luck in this text as well. So you take Daniel 9 away from this, the only passage that even remotely hits in the seven-year tribulation, if that's already fulfilled, then the whole thing's just gone. There's no reason to read passages as Dr. Pentecost must read them, except that he's presupposed that to be true. Now, if my dispensational friends are correct, and this coming is a secret, and only believers hear it, then I'm going to quote my friend Ken Jones again, my Whitehurst compatriot, that this is like a cosmic dog whistle. Remember, you used to be able to buy the dog whistles in the magazines. You could blow the whistle and only the neighborhood dogs would hear it. Well, the loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, only believers hear it? No. Why all the noise? Because this is the end. Now, why do I keep harping on that point? Because our dispensational friends tell us they are dispensations because they read the Bible literally. And again and again and again, it is clear that they can't read the passage on its face because they have so much presuppositional baggage they've got to force into the passage. Now, another place where dispensational presuppositions get in the way of the clear teaching of Scripture can be seen in the specific terms used by the biblical writers to describe the return of Christ. So I'm going to move on now to particular biblical terminology. Um, First of these is apocalypsis, which literally means an unveiling, and it refers to the removal of those things which are presently obstructing our vision of Christ. Apocalypsis is kind of a stripping away of the veil so we can finally see. Um, The book of Revelation is the apocalypse of John. It's the stripping away so now John can see. The imagery here is one of Daniel being given the scroll and the scroll at the end of the book of Daniel sealed. He can't tell what's in it. Whereas the book of Revelation begins with the angel opening the scroll and Daniel tells us what, uh, John tells us what Daniel couldn't. So that kind of, of an image. The term appears in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul longs for Christ to be revealed to all. And it appears in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, another passage I think we need to read um, because this is a text that is extremely problematic if you're a dispensationalist. Um, this is one of those I finally just had to say, Uncle, I did not know how to answer this one. Beginning at verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the crema, judgment, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. So this is, this is you know, are you saved? This is another way of, of answering that question. For which you are also suffering, since God considers it just to repay affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord is revealed. Apocalypse, when the Lord is revealed from heaven, Afuranu, from heaven with these mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 
when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So when does judgment occur in that Second Thessalonians passage? When Christ comes back. Not a thousand years later. And when Christ comes back, this is the apocalypsis. This is the unveiling. That which we could not see, we now see. Peter uh, speaks of this when he calls the final judgment, uh, the second coming of Christ, the final judgment in 1 Peter 1, chapter 7, and when Christ's glory is manifest in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Now, the second key term here is epiphania, a word that means appearance or manifestation, epiphany. It's used in reference to Christ coming forth out of a hidden background to bring the rich blessings of salvation. So this not only has to do with the appearing, it has to do with the appearing for the purpose of dispensing blessings. And if you think in covenantal categories, this means to dispense covenant blessing and to mete out covenant curse to reward, and to judge. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, the passage that deals with the man of sin, which we covered several weeks ago, when our Lord returns to destroy the lawless one, this is at His appearance or at His epiphania, His manifestation. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, we're instructed to fight the good fight of faith until Christ appears until Christ makes His epiphany. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 8, when Christ comes back in judgment, this is His epiphany. And then the passage we looked at several weeks ago in Titus 2.13, when our Lord Jesus appears, He appears as our glorious God and Savior, the epiphany there in Titus 2.13, our blessed hope. The third term is parousia. literally means presence, and points to the coming of Christ that either precedes the presence or results in the presence. In the Olivet Discourse, that term is used several times in references to our Lord's return or to the Second Coming. In 1 Corinthians 15.23, Paul uses the term in reference to Christ's return to consummate that resurrection which He is the first fruits. Remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 where the language of Christ is the first fruits. When that first stalk of wheat, the head on that wheat ripens. Those who from Nebraska might know how that works when that first stock comes in and, and that wheat tassels, what's that say? That the whole crop is about to ripen. So when Christ rises from the dead as the first fruits, that tells us that all those in Christ are going to be raised as well. And when that happens, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that is Christ's parousia, His appearing. Paul uses that term in reference to Christ's return to consummate the resurrection. He uses it in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 in reference to our Lord's presence when He comes. He uses it in reference to our appearance before the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. And as we saw at the second advent in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the term is used repeatedly in reference to the second coming. And I won't bore you with the details. You can read this in the book. You'll find it in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 3. And then finally, in verse 12 of 2 Peter 3, Peter uses the word parousia in connection with Christ's return to renew the cosmos. 
So all of that is to say the words apocalypsis, epiphania, and parousia are all used in reference to the resurrection, the judgment, the cosmic renewal, and they all occur when? When Christ comes back. And I think the case is ironclad that when Christ comes back, it is to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. He's not coming back to appear secretly, take people off, and then come back bodily. He's not coming back to do that and then set up a thousand-year rule and then a thousand years later to, to judge the world and then make the new... No. Every one of these passages that uses these, these terms say it occurs when Christ comes back at His second advent. So it's very tough to, to argue otherwise. Now, as we conclude, I think it's clear that even this brief survey of the way in which these terms are used throughout the New Testament it ought to be readily apparent that this raises a number of important difficulties for dispensationalists. All three terms are used interchangeably of both the rapture, what dispensationalists would call the rapture, and the second coming. So if we can find that these terms are used interchangeably for what dispensationalists say happened seven years before the return, if these terms are used of the same, then I think it's pretty clear that these are two aspects of the same thing that we're not talking about things that are different. We're talking about things that are distinct. There's not one coming followed by another seven years. they are different elements of the same return. Everybody got me on that? Now, Hukama, in his wonderful book, Bible in the Future, uh, addresses this point that those terms are used interchangeably of the rapture and the parousia of the, of the second coming. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of these. I won't read them all, but... I list them in my book as well. Hookman notes in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Paul uses parousia to describe what pre-tribulationists would call the rapture. But in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, the same word is used to describe the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. That would be the second phase of Christ's return according to pre-tribulation folk. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul uses the term parousia to refer to the coming which Christ shall bring the Antichrist to nigh. But if you're a dispensationalist, that's not supposed to happen until the second coming. So the use of these terms being interchangeable for the catching up and the bodily return makes it very, very difficult to argue that this is a difference. Rather, it's a distinction. Hukuma goes on. Let's do this with Apocalypsis. We've done it with Parousia. Let's use it with Apocalypsis. Turning next, as looking into the word apocalypsis, we find Paul using it in 1 Corinthians 1.7 to describe what interpreters call the rapture as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in 2 Thessalonians 1.7-8, the passage we just read, the same word is used to describe what pre-tribulations call the second phase of the second coming. At the revelation, the apocalypsis of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with the angels of His power in flaming fire. Angels with flaming fire. That's the second coming. That's not the secret rapture. And then a third one. The same thing's true with the word epiphania. In 1 Timothy 6.14, it refers to what pre-tribulations call the rapture. I charge you to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing, the epiphania of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul uses the same word to describe the coming of Christ at which time he will overthrow the man of lawlessness. And then, says Paul, he shall be revealed, the lawless one whom the Lord Jesus shall bring to naught by the manifestation 
the epiphania of his coming. So that won't happen according to pre-trib folk until the end of the tribulation. So Hukama goes on to say in conclusion that the use of these words provides no basis whatsoever for the kind of separation pre-tribulations make between the two phases of Christ's return. So to look at these terms, to see that all three of these things are tied to the Apocalypsis, the Epiphany, and the Parousia, and then further to see that they're used interchangeably of what preacher folk call the rapture and the bodily return, there is no biblical basis for arguing that Christ comes back secretly in the clouds, catches believers up, and then bodily returns seven years later. There's just no biblical support for it at all. And I think that then becomes not only a problem for dispensationalists, it becomes, I think, additional evidence of the fact that this entire thing depends on Pentecost presuppositions. If you presuppose that there are different purposes for Israel and the Gentiles, then you've got to find a way to get the Gentile church out of the way so God can go back to dealing with Israel. Then you have to manufacture a difference between the catching up of believers and Christ's bodily return when Paul sees them as two different aspects of the same event. You would never read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and come to the conclusion that the catching up was seven years before the raising of the dead. You would never, ever conclude that. And I want to ram this point home again to my dispensational friends. You have argued that the reason why amillennialism is so problematic is to use the allegorical method of interpretation. I ask you, who's being allegorical here? It's the dispensationalist who tells us they read the Bible literally that has to find a seven-year gap when Paul plainly says when believers are caught up, they then come back with Christ when the dead are raised. Who's being allegorical here? It is the dispensationalist. The same thing is true as we'll see next time with Daniel chapter 9. The seven weeks run concurrently, consecutively rather, The 62 weeks run right after the 7 weeks, up to the 69th week. But no, 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 there's this gap of thousands of years between the 69th and the 70th week. Where's the gap? It's not in the passage. You have to read it in the passage. But you can't read it in the passage when you've just told us that your hermeneutic demands that you read the Bible literally. Where are the gaps? The same thing is true with ammonium. These clear passages tell us that when Christ comes back, He judges the world, raises the dead, and make all things new. Where's the thousand-year gap between Christ coming back to earth and the judgment? Where is it? It's not there. And yet your hermeneutic says what again? You read the Bible literally? Now, the reason why I chafe at this is because as someone who has been in dialogue with dispensations for a long time, all-mill folk are always accused of allegorizing, turning the Bible into a wax nose, making it say what we want to say. And I think the shoe is on the other foot. And I hope you can see how dispensationalists, right or wrong, can't make good on their own hermeneutic. 
that when they get pushed into a corner, they have to find gaps that are not there in the passage. And the amillenarian can take all of these passages on their face and make perfect sense of them. So if you're dispensational premillennial, I think you have a real big problem and you have a whole lot of homework to do. And if you're amill, I think it ought to be really clear that this is one of the strongest arguments for the amill position is when Christ comes back, it is to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. And the words apocalypsis, epiphany, and parousia are used of all of these. And the time reference is clear at Christ's second advent. If that's true, premillennialism collapses and dispensational premillennialism collapses as well. I think the case is really strong. So when we resume next time, we'll take up Daniel 9, and then we'll look at the Olivet Discourse, and we'll look at Romans 9 to 11 and Revelation chapter 20, and that'll bring to a blessed end the Amillennialism 101 series. Uh, if you have any questions, you may go back to the mic and ask them so we get your melodious voice on little ones and zeros. Yes, uh, as uh, we've just seen, there, there's a, we understand, a, a general tribulation, then a great tribulation, and I guess I understand a, a tribulation uh, by Satan. So, uh, so I'm, I'm like not clear on all that. Okay. The Bible speaks of tribulation in several ways. One are for particular events in the New Testament. One that jumps to mind is the horrible cataclysm that comes on Jerusalem uh, in associated with the events of AD 70. When Jesus says, great tribulation shall come upon Jerusalem. And as we'll see when we get to the Olivet Discourse, I'm going to argue that much of that passage is Jesus telling the disciples about what is soon to come in the events of AD 70 and the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. And when you think of that particular tribulation, it amounts to a time in which the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the Roman army, and like an anaconda, the Roman army circles the city, the siege walls go up, the Romans start to build their siege ramps, and basically what they did was the Roman engineers would build a ramp that was higher than the walls of the city so they could, their archers could shoot down on the city. They cut off the water and the food supply. That created a situation described by Josephus in the Jewish Wars that was horrific cannibalism. The, the Jews who were left in the city were fighting amongst each other and realizing that the Romans were going to you know, get to the wall here pretty quick. Then they, they, they quit fighting among themselves, fought against the Romans. The Romans eventually broke through the, the outer part of the wall to the inner court, finally the temple, and then the soldiers of Titus burned the Roman temple down. As a result of the temple being destroyed, it amounts to the end of Judaism. Because Judaism we find today, based on the diaspora of the Jews in the four corners of the earth, is a religion completely unlike Old Testament Judaism that's centered around a temple and a priesthood and animal sacrifices and all of that. And so Israel is left desolate. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple's destroyed, and the Jews are dispersed to the four corners of the earth. It is the most horrific cataclysm to come upon Jerusalem in the past, in the present, or ever again. 
So I take the language of tribulation there to be a reference to Jerusalem's tribulation, Israel's tribulation in AD 70, which as a consequence sees the Jews dispersed, the diaspora, the Jews cast in, in, into the nations. Then you have references to in one of the seven churches. I, I'm thinking it's Smyrna. There's a reference to tribulation for that congregation. It might be Pergamon or, or Smyrna. I forget which one. And then you have the later reference in 13, 17, or 16 of the book of Revelation of the saints coming out of the great tribulation. And the great tribulation there is used of the entire interadvental period between Christ's first and second coming. So the word is used in different ways in the New Testament. But it's never used, ever used, of a seven-year period before Christ comes back. It's never connected to Antichrist. It's connected to the destruction of Jerusalem, to the, the trials of one of those seven churches, and to the interadvental period. So this is why the Reformation churches, the Reformed churches, Lutheran churches, have said this is the age now of the church militant. This is the church on the earth suffering and being persecuted by this continually rising beast, external persecution from the state, and the internal persecution, the Antichrist, arising from false doctrine and heresy within. So there's external persecution in the form of Caesar demanding to be worshipped and false teachers who deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, Antichrist in the church. So we are now in the tribulation, but we're anticipating the blessed hope. So I think that's a real important question because you've got to step back sometimes and look at the way those terms are used. And there's a lot said when you realize that terms never used of a seven-year period after the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. It's not there. That's a good question. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we are reminded yet again of that glorious truth. That one day and maybe soon our blessed Lord will come and on that day He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The dead in Christ will be raised. Those who are alive, caught up to meet Him in the clouds. And on that day, we will finally see our God and our Savior as He is. And so with Paul and the early church, we pray yet again, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.